Hey everybody, this is Mark Vines from The Mark Vines Show, and thanks for joining us today. This is your one-stop shop for everything freedom, constitution, America, and really just the right way of living, right here on this one show. And I am really excited. I'm at a meeting today with um, American Voters, Veterans Vote, that's American Veterans Vote, and I'm here with uh, the main players of the organization, and I have with me today Michael Maybach, who's on the Board of Advisors for American Veterans Vote, and just wanted to introduce you guys to the people that are part of this great organization, which, as you know, is really out to, to serve veterans in not only the nation, but particularly here in the state of Virginia, since that's where we are. And they are really advocating for veterans issues, supporting veterans who are running for office, particularly in Virginia. And this has been an exciting day w- uh, with exciting meetings, just talking about how bright a future Virginia can have. And uh, I just want to introduce you as we go along uh, over this next year to the main players in this organization and then later, I'm going to be interviewing the candidates that we have running for office in Virginia. So with that, today, uh, Michael, thanks for joining me. Yes, sir. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, and then we'll talk about how you became part of Americans, uh, American Veterans Vote and what you do with them. Well, I'm a native of Peoria, Illinois. My uh, father was in the U.S. Navy during World War II, and... Um, I went to college in Illinois, was elected to public office when I was an undergraduate, so I was 20 years old. And um, after grad school, I uh, joined Caterpillar Tractor Company, which is headquartered in my hometown of Peoria, and was in the government affairs departments called in Illinois, and then they moved me out to California. Um, and f- in 1983, the four men that started the Intel Corporation uh hired me to start their government affairs department. Uh, 1983, Intel was a very small company. Everyone had typewriters, including at Intel. But within two or three years, of course, the PC revolution started. So I spent most of my career in the semiconductor business with Intel, uh, growing um, uh, our engagement around the world with uh, government officials elected and appointed, including U.S. Congress and the administration, et cetera. So I, uh, I was in what I call global business diplomacy for most of my career. The last ten years, I was president of the European American Business Council. We had a Brussels and a Washington D.C. office. About seventy-five multinational companies trying to get the European Union and the United States government to, in terms of standards and regulations, to align with each other, which was virtually impossible mm-hmm. because nobody wanted to uh, bend to the other's practice. Uh, so I did that for a decade and now I'm in the nonprofit world. Yeah. And your your elected office story is quite unique. I heard it a little bit earlier. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you became the youngest, is that right? The, the youngest person elected? Well, so until January 1st of 1972, the voting age in the United States of America was 21. And January 1st of 1972, the 25th Amendment went into um, uh, effect and um, gave the 18-year-old 
the right to vote. Now, in those days, we had a huge amount of campus unrest about the Vietnam War. So, so many people around me, I was at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, where where barbed wire and hybrid seed corn were invented by those farmers mm-hmm. up there. And uh, lots of people were throwing bricks through police car windows and starting fires and otherwise being, um, what my father would say, is uh, not a gentleman <laughs> or a lady. And so I decided to run for office because everybody was being so negative. I thought I would be positive and engage. And so I got elected. Six to one Democratic district. I ran as a Republican, but I went to every door. I won by 37 votes. Wow. Uh, April 12th of 1972. And uh, because in Illinois, the counties, there's 102 counties, they have the elections before they put in the crops rather than, you know, November elections in this country is after the crops are done. That's why they had November elections because everybody knows how the year went. All right. I never knew that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why we have summers off because the kids had to go to the farm. Yeah. So a lot of our uh, our civics is around the f- the farm economy, if you oh, will. Very interesting. Yeah. So um, so I got elected. I was the first one under. 21 years of age in American history to get elected to public office simply because I did it three months, 12 days into the amendment. <laughs> Nobody else had a chance to compete, really. Uh, so, so that, and I got elected. So I, so that was the that was the story there. And I, I finished my undergraduate. Had to go to graduate school there because it was a four year term. And my opponent said, "Don't vote for this guy because he's a he's a young college student. He'll leave. You won't serve his term." So. So I had to stick around for a graduate degree in constitutional law, and that's what I did. Oh, well, fantastic. Well, that leads me to the, the next subject, which is uh, American Veterans Vote. And obviously, you're you're part of this organization. Tell us yes. a little bit about this organization and, and yeah. your role in it. Well, and um, I want to slightly correct something you said. Uh, AVV, or American Veterans Votes, <clears throat> is not an advocate for veterans. It's, a, it's an organization, and it's new, we're new, that takes very seriously what all soldiers, all military take seriously, their oath of office, mm-hmm. which is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. Absolutely. And as George Washington says, when you become a soldier, you don't uh, lose your citizenship. It's just part of your citizenship. And those oaths are for life in our view, for those that want to look at it that way. We're quite concerned about the state of the American Republic. Um, and that's a, no, we can talk about that if you want, but it's in... Um, we have we're on stormy seas let's put it that way and so we want there's uh, 13 million veterans in the united states 800,000 in virginia alone and we want to start engaging them starting in virginia with the political process in the sense of here are key issues that you might want to consider that are important to this republic and this commonwealth the state of virginia and uh, here might be some candidates who agree with your views on uh, defending and protecting this constitution in our republic if you think about it Unfortunately, the progressive left, as they call themselves, or the left, pretty much is uh, doing battle with every part of our Constitution. Uh, every part. 
part. Every part. Yeah. Well, the filibuster in the Senate, um, the uh, the administrative state that makes laws instead of the Congress, a Supreme Court that makes laws instead of the Congress, while the Congress has become a platform rather than a policy body for too many people. Uh, we have uh, the National Popular Vote Compact trying to take out the Electoral College without an amendment to the Constitution. So, um, and we have now um, s- s- some legislation, H.R. Uh, 1, that says let's nationalize the control of our elections. Well, the Constitution says the states will run elections. If we have nationalization of elections and with open borders, um, part of the bill says there'll be no voter ID to vote. You can just sh- show up and vote. Uh, if you get a driver's license, you'll be registered as a voter, even though uh, we have 20 plus states that now give IDs to illegal immigrants. Like, For free? Yeah, yeah, like New York and California. So if you want to have a republic with sincere and <clears throat> uh, elections of integrity, you um, you want to have each state have their own laws. I mean, the... F- 13 states wrote the Constitution. The Constitution did not create the 13 states, and they did not want to have France. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, they, matter of fact, the reason we have the Electoral College is we, have, we elect the president in a popular vote, but in 50 states. We have 50 popular votes, 5-0. And so, anyway, th- that's a long answer, but the short answer is we believe the Constitution and this republic are in play because there are certain forces that uh, are unhappy with um, what the Constitution is. Uh, during the constitutional uh, ratification debates, and by the way, there were, there were conventions and votes in all 13 states to ratify that. So once the founders in 1787 said on um, the 17th of September they signed the Constitution, then for two years the states debated it. And... Um, uh, one of the concerns, the criticisms by George Mason, for example, he refused to sign the Constitution, was it didn't have a Bill of Rights, because Virginia did, for example. Well, Hamilton in Federalist 84 wrote, the reason we don't have a Bill of Rights in the Constitution is because the entire Constitution is a Bill of Rights. It, the checks and balances, the federalism, the what the government can and cannot do, all these are protecting our liberties. And of course, it's the world's oldest constitution other than the Constitution of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. When we wrote our constitution, nobody on the planet had a constitution. Other than the, the 13 states, the only one that lasted was Massachusetts, and that was written by John Adams primarily, and the founders of the constitution, the, the authors, those um, 59 men, uh, used the the Adams, Adams Constitution as the model for our Constitution mm-hmm. today. And that's why, interestingly, our Constitution and the Massachusetts Constitution are the only ones that survived because they both have the same uh, design. Mm-hmm. Well, what we have going on right now, and so what people like myself, and I know a lot of our listeners, we're very concerned about this because I, I'm with you. I feel like the Constitution is under attack. In fact, we could go a step further and say that nearly every institution, traditional institution right. in the United States is under attack. And I know that that's something that veterans um, uh, vote for America. Um, or uh, American veterans vote. American veterans vote is really behind. And, and that is something that needs to appeal or does appeal to not only veterans but many Americans. And that's something that we have to address and this is something that we all need to rally around because 
it is apparent, particularly in the last four or so months, maybe five months here um, un- under this administration, we are under attack. And I'm seeing more and more people, mm-hmm. even people that have been rather agnostic politically, people that have not been involved, are really noticing this. It's like, what what's going yeah. on and what yeah. is the future? Are we going to survive uh, the next three and a half years? Uh, where are we going with this? And uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think that this is, you know, we need more education? Do we need to, or what? what is the future? Because this is a very interesting yeah. time that we're in. I've never seen it in my lifetime, yeah. not at least to this level. Well, uh, one way to think about what we're going through is the 1850s on the run-up to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. That was about slavery, uh, manumission. That was about actual human beings being enslaved in the South, and that came clashed, clashing against uh, free labor. In other words, people wanted to be paid for their work, and they didn't want to compete <laughs> with slaves uh, in a practical sense, but also in a moral sense. Uh, there was no moral defense for slavery that a lot of people, that's why 750,000 people died in that Civil War. Today, um, it's a very different challenge, but uh, the way to, you can look at it is it's a challenge of freedom versus dependency on government or um, is government a servant of our of the people or are we now um, I don't use want to use the word serfs but um, we're we're moving uh, pretty close to you know we want to have free college at the federal level some some do like well I won't mention names but uh, we want to have in the infrastructure bill we want to have uh, daycare you know <laughs> that has nothing to do with infrastructure yeah. but um, if you if you control daycare then you can start to, che- to treat uh, sorry teach children uh, at the youngest age etc. So this is all by way of saying. Um, the, the left has its own creed, mm-hmm. uh, and we can get into that, but um, I think the number one thing we can, we've can we learned in the COVID crisis is <clears throat> we need to put parents in charge of what schools their kids go to mm-hmm. and what is being taught there. Uh, so instead of teachers' unions, parent unions, mm-hmm. if you will, um, because the left now wants to bring critical race theory, which is uh, the second generation of Marxist thinking. Mm-hmm. Marx tried to get people to be envious about who owns what, that you know, socialism, and it didn't work because people in this country, especially, found they if they worked hard, they'd get ahead and have all kinds of material mm-hmm. things, which we have. So. How do we divide people if not by class? We divide them by race. Right, which is inherently racist. Critical race theory is a racist theory. You know, anytime you categorize anyone solely based on their skin color is by definition racist. That's right. And um, this this is so contrary to what Martin Luther King told us, which is you judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And the wonderful thing about this country today and our military and our civilian life, I mean, I spent my life in international business. People didn't walk into the office and say, uh, what's, what's your skin color? What's your gender? What they said is, how how thoughtful are you? What what's the quality of your thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have integrity? Can I trust you? And you can trust me, etc. And it was all about quality of character and your training. It was not about skin. Nobody in my inter, international business career, and I don't, and I dare say in the military, um, people didn't look at skin color. But now that's all anybody on the left wants to talk about because right. this is a way to divide border groups 
to have a, a source of power readily available by saying, well, people of color need to vote this way. And it just, it just has, it contains no respect for people's individuality and their own judgment. And I think a lot of people resent this. Right. But we are, we are in the middle of that stew right now. And um, and it threatens our constitution because our constitution is and should be uh, uh, something very different than this. Yeah, and you know, I I know that there's right now as we're speaking, and we're at the end of May of 2021. You know, so down the road, in years down the road, when people go back, they can put in context what I'm about to say. So we are at a point right now where. COVID, right? So we're at the tail end and, and the communities are starting to open up. We're starting to demask. We're starting to move forward. You know, much of the population is vaccinated and we're, we're moving down that road. But we went through this year of this pandemic and the shutdowns and the controls and the masks and, mm-hmm. and things like this. And we're still trying to get to the bottom of what caused this, right? We're, we're still trying to get to the bottom of this. Now, I... For for those that are out there that are conspiracy theorists, we're not going to get into all that. All I do know is this, that however it started, largely that doesn't matter at this point for what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say is, over this last year, there are liberties that have been taken from American mm-hmm. citizens yeah. that are truly unprecedented in my mm-hmm. lifetime. Yeah. And it seems to me, and what really bothers me, is that the information, the you know... On the origins, the information on what was known, who caused what, who did what. I'm very concerned about the control of the information. There's no freedom of thought. Yeah. There's no freedom of exchange of ideas. Uh, we are allowing the government to come in and tell us what we can and can't do, even though yeah. the science, and we're always told to follow the science, doesn't support many of the policies that, that, we're, that we're following. Yeah. And there's this paranoia. I've often said, I tell friends of mine all the time, we are creating a national mental health crisis. Us mm-hmm. with with masks you know for example we're starting to demask now and i don't know about you but i walk around in stores where i know they've told us that we can take the mask off and i feel weird i feel like people are judging me i feel like somebody's going to say mm-hmm. something to me it's weird we've created sort of sort of this mental phobia and it seems like the left has really taken this last year mm-hmm. to come in and just grab yeah. control and grab rights from people and what's really and i'm not surprised that the left does this because that's what they do but what has surprised me is how willing people are mm-hmm. to give up those rights yeah. and we've got to be real careful with that don't we yes sir um yeah i give a lot of speeches around the country defending the electoral college last year 34 by zoom <laughs> and a few more in person but this year of course i'll be starting again in person uh I used to start those speeches in 1787 in Philadelphia to describe the challenge that the 13 states were dealing with in creating the Constitution. And then a young lady at, at a, a, an American college, I don't need to name the college, said to me on a Zoom call during the Q&A, you know, Mr. Maybach, what I don't like about the founders is they didn't give women the right to vote. To which I said, Susan... In 1787, women were voting in precisely which countries? And her fellow students started to laugh because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I said, in no countries. In 1787, other than the United States, men were not voting anywhere. And by the way, there's 1.3 billion people in China today that have never voted. All right? So the founders 
were born into a world where there are slaves in every country. There was freedom in no countries. We had George III in, in England. We had uh, Louis XVI in France. We had Charles II in, in uh, Spain. We had emperors in China and Japan, etc. It was a world of tyranny. And so now I open my speech with a picture of Socrates taking the hemlock with, with Plato and the other young men around him. And then a picture of Plato's Apology, which is his book about the trial of Socrates, who was an old man who was asking questions of the youth about what they were going to do with their lives. This was after the Peloponnesian Wars nearly destroyed Athens because of their arborists. And in that book, uh, sorry, uh, because of that book, he started the academy, the first university. This is Plato. And in his book called Plato's Republic, he writes... What I've learned from that experience with Socrates, this old man who was put to death because he asked questions, is that democracies always become tyrannies. And his best student was Aristotle. And Aristotle wrote the book Politics. Mm -hmm. And in that, he grappled with the problem of majority tyranny. Matter of fact, in the Bible it says, never follow the majority if it leads to harm. Okay, so this is an old idea, which is the majority can be very tyrannical. And what Aristotle writes is, the only way to protect um, your freedom, your individual freedom in a popular government is the mixed regime. That's what he called it, which was Caesar, the Senate, and the Roman citizens, which were very few, okay? Fast forward to Montesquieu, who in 17... 48 wrote Spirit of the Laws. He was a Frenchman who studied his whole life, 20 years, about why democracies fail. And we get from him checks and balances. All, right, all school children used to be taught, taught that. Now they get critical race theory instead. <laughs> but um, checks and balances. We have the House versus the Senate. We have the Congress versus the President. We have the Supreme Court, etc. We have the states versus the federal government. The, and, and Madison wrote in Federalist 51, the entire Constitution is a compound republic, a compound republic. In other words, all these checks and balances, why? To keep you free. And the first thing they wrote after the Constitution was adopted in 1789 was Madison was the author in the, of the legislation of the Bill of Rights. And those are the first 10 amendments. By 1791, two years after the Constitution, we had the Bill of Rights, all right? So in, in summary... What the left wants to do with all the mass making and, and all the things they've done is the, the federal government will control your entire life. This is a form of tyranny. Mm -hmm. Close your churches. The, the, the racetracks can keep open, but close the churches. Um, uh, the, the big box stores like the you know, Harris Teeter and, and Amazon can stay open, but the, the, the family-run grocery store down the street, you have to close. This is a form, of, this is a form unfortunately, of, of um, a political power uh, in the name of public health that has just gone too far, and the founders would be aghast mm -hmm. that it's been used that way. So what we know from history, from Plato, from, from Aristotle, from Montesquieu, from frankly, half the world that's enslaved or whatever in our history is that um, uh, man tends to um, uh, 
through democracy to tyrannize because the majority always wants its way. It's just natural. And therefore, we have to have minority rights. Yeah. And when we have on our coins where it says, in God we trust, the rest of that sentence is, and not the king. In God we trust. In other words, Jefferson writes in the Declaration of Independence, we're endowed by our creator. Now, Jefferson wasn't an active Christian. He was a deist. Mm-hmm. He, his Bible, he took all the, all the miracles out of his Bible. He did. A lot of people forget right. that. Yeah. yeah. So he was a deist. But he, like Locke and Cicero, knew that we get our rights from our creator. And the reason we can say that is because you and I make moral choices. And my dog doesn't. A cow doesn't. We can have a steak for dinner because that cow is not a moral being. We are moral beings. We're as close to our creator in our nature as any being on the planet. And therefore, each person has a soul, at least we of some sort, you know, a moral being. And therefore, they have to be respected and not controlled because they're a minority mm-hmm. or even one person, one person that has a belief. Right, and so in God we trust means we get our rights from our 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 Creator, not from the King. In God we trust, and not the King. So it's not establishment of religion on the coin. What it's reminding us every day with that quarter or you know half dollar or whatever is that we get our rights from our Creator. Don't forget it. Washington does not give us all of our rights. They're to respect our rights and to be very careful about taking them away. Yeah, and I think this year really demonstrates that in black and white for us. You you were absolutely correct. You know, Walmart is open, but I can't go to church. Yeah. I can go to the gym, but I can't go to work. That wasn't that was always an interesting yeah. thing yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh the workplace where I was at, I they wouldn't allow us in the building, but I could go to the gym. And that yeah. was almost from the very beginning. They closed the schools. Yeah. My gosh. Schools. I have uh two kids in, in college and both of the universities, they are just you know, you have to wear a mask, and we will. You know, people give you the dirty look. And, Zoom classes and, the, and all these different types of yeah. things. And then I ask the question: uh, How many college <clears throat> kids? And there may be some. I don't know it, but I think it's got to be an infinitesimally small number. But how many college kids have have died from COVID? I mean, a lot have contracted yeah. it, yeah. but how many have died? Very few. Not that very yeah. few. But yet, so why are we not meeting in person? Why are we not doing these things? And to me. It was. It, it just illustrated exactly what you just said, and yeah. it was just uh, government control gone wild. And now that we have the vaccine and, and we're moving forward, you see this resistance. You see this resistance yeah. to open up. Right. And it's just amazing to me. It, it's almost like people want to be controlled. Yeah. And that's a scary thing because right. that's where you were talking about. The, the people, the, the, the popular vote, the, the people, just this popular notion of people being in control, that's so antithetical to what our founders wanted. So, so let's briefly explore yeah. what is at the root of this desire to control, okay? Yeah. Because I think this is the central question of our age uh, in the United States right now. Mankind, men, women, are the only beings that know that they are mortal, Mm-hmm. My dog doesn't know that she's only got another eight years or whatever it is. She's a dachshund. She's eight years old, so they live 15, 16 years. My dog doesn't know that, but you and I do. We know we're mortal because we've had parents and grandparents, and we know they go away, et cetera, et cetera. 
So that's very sobering. It makes it makes us serious in a way that other creatures are not. The the birds in the air, they're carefree. We carefree as a bird. We say sometimes. So number one, we're a serious being because we know um, we know that we're mortal, and that gives us certain um, consciousness that other beings don't have. Number two, we know that life is difficult. Life is difficult. And it's frustrating for us because because we have reason. We're trying. We're always trying to figure out why life is difficult, right? And this is this is a, a lot of the reason we have philosophy and psychology and sociology and and um, the political science. I mean, why did why did Aristotle and and Montesquieu and Saint Augustine and Aquinas and and John Locke, why do these people struggle with these ideas? So number one, we know we're mortal. And number two, we know life is difficult. And so most people, historically, especially in this country, because this has been a Judeo-Christian built country, think, so my number one project in life, my project is me. In other words, I have to be as virtuous as I can. Matter of fact, in the Catholic faith, they have confession, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're always we're always failing at this, right? Lord, forgive me, you know. And um, so, so we we our project is to be virtuous people, so that our funeral, in part, people will say. He or she lived a virtuous life. They loved their spouse. They raised their kids. They were a good colleague. All the things we say when people live a good and virtuous life. And that, so we are our own project. Unfortunately, there are those that realize I'm mortal. Life is difficult. And I'm going to give in to the temptation to start my virtue by identifying those people who make life difficult. This is the Marxian conceit, which is, it was, gee, um, life is difficult because some people own the means of production, you know, the capitalists, and let's divide them, the bourgeoisie versus proletariat. That's what Marx tried to do uh, on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. That's what he tried to do. It didn't work. It didn't work. Well, it works in Cuba and in North Korea and China, but it's really just an excuse for tyranny. But the new, the new um, Marxism is life is difficult and it's because of the color of your skin or maybe your gender, okay? Uh, and we, we hear a lot about color and I don't really want to get into all the words that are used all the time. But if you have a population that starts to, rather than pursue their own virtue, starts to decide who's virtuous and who is not, what we call cancel culture, that's how you get canceled in this culture because you're not virtuous. Then that person feels like I'm leading a virtuous life by calling out the bad people and that makes me good without ever working on themselves. For better or for worse, in the Christian and Judeo-Christian tradition, there is what we call forgiveness because we all need to be forgiven because we're all so imperfect. But on the left, this mindset that there are some good people and there are some bad people and we will identify them, there is no forgiveness. And in a society where some are branded because of the color of their skin or, or their uh, gender or, you know, or their religious beliefs, my gosh, their religious beliefs, um, there is no forgiving them. And this is the way you destroy a society. Mm-hmm. And that's why 
like in the 1850s, we're in the middle of a civil war brewing because we're going to have to decide if we're going to be a society of people that try to be virtuous themselves and forgive others because they they need to be forgiven themselves or will this be a society of the haves and have nots the those that have virtue and those that need to be shunned or even canceled or worse mm-hmm. um, and the mask is is the beginning of that mindset of you, you, you get your shot and then put your mask back on okay um, in other words it can never be enough and so Ron DeSantis the governor of Florida yeah. I heard him speak uh, last year you know he didn't close the businesses or the schools they were open all last year and well he, he closed them for two or three months during the during the hospitalization uh, protection period but he has this wonderful saying who am I as governor of Florida to decide whose job is essential or not essential because for everybody that has a job who's who's paying for their bills paying for their kids paying for their spouse etc everybody's job is essential to them mm-hmm. that's the mindset and the people we need. that depend yes. on them yes you have small children right and the taxes they pay and the services they provide if i'm a doctor and i can't serve my patients I've, I've lost a huge part of my life and don't shut down my practice, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Or if I, deliver, <clears throat> if I deliver groceries and you say now, you know, I, I can't, I can't uh, you know, stop by somebody's house or something. So it's, um, there, there's a lot of, a, a lot of um, dis-ease, if you will, about the nature of the human condition. That's where we get the word disease is dis-ease. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I would like to have people think about our problem is we, we have to say to our friends on the left, our fellow citizens, not always friendly, um, let's talk about the nature of the human condition and why it's broken and how it's broken. When I speak to a group and we get into this sometimes, I ask them, raise your hand if you like Shakespearean plays. And almost everybody raises their hand. And I said, why would you like Shakespearean plays? He lived 600 years ago. Oh, because the nature of the human condition hasn't changed since Shakespeare. Matter of fact, read any, any literature at all. And Macbeth, kill the king, you know, whatever. And so human, human nature has been broken forever, forever. And, and because of that, uh, this is this is something that can't be changed with shunning people or canceling people or whatever. So, h- humility and forgiveness are the watchwords of successful society. Uh, the hubris of who's good and who's bad, of never forgiving anybody, you know, the watchwords for a destroyed society. And they go a step further because it's not even forgiving you for something that you have done. But when you talk about reparations in this country and that whole argument, I mean, who in this country has owned slaves? Who in this country has been a slave? And reparations for something that that my, you know, my ancestors did and I wasn't Mm -hmm. there. I was not on planet Earth when that when that occurred. Uh, Yeah, it's we've gone too far. And so that's what I like about what we're talking about today in this meeting and the work that we're doing is getting people involved to not lose this country. I don't even want to say bring the country back because we haven't lost the country yet. I think that we're rapidly uh, moving in that direction. But 
Uh, just, just some final thoughts, just to close us out here and let us know how uh, our listeners can contact the, and get more information about what we're doing here, and, and how can they contact you if they if they like. Um, okay. Um, well, <clears throat> they can go to AmericanVeteransVote.com, dot com, mm-hmm. sign up uh, in Virginia or anywhere you can, wherever you live, but this next year and a half we're going to focus on organizing virginia you have to start small and build and uh, those of us that are doing this are all in virginia and we've seen this state change a lot uh and so they can do that they can contact me um by going to saveourstates.com and i'm right there uh or they can email me uh mcm at maybach.us Okay, and, and spell Maybach one more time for them. M-A-I-B-A-C-H dot okay. U-S. Well, that's great. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I Thank really you. appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, and, and I know the, the listeners really appreciate that as well. So, again, guys, this is Mark Vines from the Mark Vines Show. Reach out to me. Uh, take a look at my Facebook site. and you know, Spread this, this podcast to your friends, your foes, to Democrats even. Maybe we can get some conversions out there. But we're on Facebook, we're on Parlor, uh, we are on Rumble, and so all those platforms are, are back up. And this is, again, Mark Vines, and we appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. <laughs>